Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there and welcome to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners, and the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And we are always very, very happy to have the Brooklyn Borough historian, Ron Schweiger, on the program. Ron, always a pleasure. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And let's get right into it. We're going to focus uh, uh, mainly on the the street names of Brooklyn and how they how some of them got their names. And uh, I, I'm, let's go all the way to Williamsburg because you were uh, we discussed a couple times. You might have even said it on the uh, the podcast before, uh, talking about Heat Street. Heat Street. Yeah. Um, well, many of the streets in Williamsburg are named after signers of the Declaration of Independence. And one of those streets, Keep Street, K-E-A-P, is actually the wrong name. Um, um, it's named for the final signer of the Declaration of Independence, uh, Mr. Um, uh, Tom, Thomas, I think Thomas or James McKeon, capital M, small c, K, uh, capital K-E-A-N, McKeon. And his penmanship was so poor that the K-E-A-N was read as keep, K-E-A-P. And uh, so for over 150 years now, the wrong name is on the street. And I, I think maybe perhaps someone should do something and uh, give this gentleman his, his right, rightful due to have his name up on the street correctly. Well, I gotta, it, you know, I gotta go with this pun though. It sounds like the the uh, the, the neighborhood wants to keep keep streets. I, I have to go there. I, you know. I, I would think so because people who who have businesses or addresses, business cards, whatever, uh, address envelopes and so on, they would have to change everything. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, maybe they ought to maybe on two opposite corners just change you know, or, or co-name it with right. an explanation so that people would really know who it's, stand, who it's for. Well, you know, maybe uh, the, the next uh, Brooklyn Borough president will be able to get something like that done. Um, right. I'm, going to go, I'm going to go all the way down to Gravesend, and you have some uh, really interesting information to uh, tell us about Gravesend streets. Yeah, well, uh, very often, in fact, most often, people who live on certain streets with names rather than numbers, um, and they've lived there for many, many, many years, and they don't know who this person is that their street is named after. And in the Sheepshead Bay area, there are a a number of streets that um, are named, for example, you have Ford Street, Coyle Street, Bragg Street, Brigham Street and Knapp Street and um, leaving one, or, and uh, Bachelda Street. Now, these are you know they're not unusual names, but who were these people? Well, in the 1870s, the Gravesend Commissioner, the Land Commissioner in Gravesend, um, hired gentlemen um, to map out a new street grid for the area, 
and um, and the gentlemen who were doing this, um, they benefited by having their names placed up on the streets. So you had Mr. Uh, Mr. A. Bichelda, Mr. A. L. Ford, Mr. G. P. Coyle, Mr. F. S. Bragg, Mr. E. D. Brigham, and finally Mr. S. K. N. A. P. P. And incidentally, if you uh, those who are listening, if you ever travel to the um, the United Artist Movie Theater in Sheepshead Bay, which is right off of Knapp Street, off the Belt Parkway, when you turn off of Knapp Street to go into the parking lot um, of the movie theater, you're turning onto a street called Harkness Avenue. Now, where does that name come from? Well, originally, you had three horse racing tracks in Brooklyn. One of them was the Sheepshead Bay Racetrack. When horse racing disappeared after 1910, because Governor Hughes of New York State uh, forbid betting at the racetracks. He was anti-gambling. Well, you had these big tracks and no more horses. Well, a gentleman named Harry Harkness purchased the property of the Sheepshead Bay Racetrack, and by 1910, 1911, there was a new fandangle contraption called the automobile. So the Sheepshead Bay Racetrack became the Harkness Sheepshead Bay Speedway, and you had automobile racing there, and the Harkness Avenue was named after Harry Harkness, and that's the very southern end of the property of the track. And oh, right so there. One of the race drivers who was racing uh, back then in these new racing cars was none other than Mr. Louis Chevrolet. Now, I don't know whether he won the race, Sam, but uh, we all know he went on to do bigger and better things. Of course. Now, that's where the movie theater is now? Yes. Well, the, the okay. theater itself is probably off the property of where the track was, but the, the street, Harkness Avenue, is probably uh, right at or very close to the southern portion of that racetrack. Okay. I'm trying to find the racetrack. I have the map in front of me. And Harkness Avenue, I mean, you got the Belt Parkway right, right there. That's right. It's, so uh, does, Hark, does Harkness continue underneath the, uh, the Belt Parkway? No, no, it does not. Okay. You're right, right. Yeah, so um, when you said United Artists, I was thinking about whether or not it was one of those movie palaces, but this looks like a, a new uh, Oh, no, this is, this is new. This is you, you, really... These movie palaces pretty much don't exist anymore, uh, except in rare cases. And, and when all the neighborhood movie theaters disappeared, um, new theaters opened up. But these were multiplexes where you had anywhere from four to maybe 10 or 12 movie theaters all within one building. And that's what you have at the, at the United Artists Theaters in Sheepshead Bay now. Well, before we get into more talk about the movie palaces, because I did want to get into the Lowe's King's Theater, um, oh, right, I yeah. want to go. I want to go to the Wickoff. The, excuse me, the Wyckoff Farmhouse Museum, uh, oh, which okay. is off of Clarendon Road. Now, before we talk about the Farmhouse Museum, do you have any anything to add about Clarendon? Um, Clarendon. Um, that's a good one. Uh, I have a book in front of me here, and I'm going to look it up and see if it's listed. Um, this book, by the way, is available. Um, in any major bookstore. It's called Brooklyn by Name, and it was published in 2006. And um, I'm looking through this. If Maybe you want to get to the King's Theater first, and then while well, I look up Clarendon. Well, that's, you, you go ahead, and 
Um, I wanted to talk a bit about the Lowe's King's Theater, which is off of Flatbush Avenue. Right. And uh, they, these movie palaces were, uh, you know, remarkable, remarkable feats of architecture. And um, besides the Lowe's King's Theater, which is going to be uh, having a, a rent, which, which is having currently a restoration project of ninety million dollars, and right. uh, it, was there others that that you were very fond of around the area? Um, well, where I grew up in the Gravesend section of Brooklyn, there were a, a number of movie theaters that you can just walk to. I mean, back back in the, in the day, so to speak, you can walk two or three blocks in any direction, and you would come to a movie theater or two or three. Um, where I grew up on Avenue S, between East 7th and East 8th Street, right near Ocean Parkway, between Ocean Parkway and Coney Island Avenue, if I would walk... Let's see, I would walk two blocks south, two and a half blocks south, and there was the Mayfair Movie Theater, okay, on the corner of Avenue U and Coney Island Avenue. It's now, the building is gone now, now there's a McDonald's on, on the site. Mm. Um, if I would walk to the north, to King's Highway, on King's Highway, between East 7th and East 8th, you had the Jewel Theater, which then became a theater known as the Cinema Theater. And the cinema is still there. And I believe when it changed to the cinema theater back in the 60s, I believe, um, it started showing um, X-rated movies. And in fact, I think it's still doing that. And that's the only theater left on King's Highway. But if you walk over to Coney Island Avenue and King's Highway, you had the Kingsway Movie Theater. That is now a Walgreens pharmacy and a Jennifer Convertibles uh, on the rear of it on Coney Island Avenue. And if you walk further east on King's Highway to East 18th Street, you had the Avalon Movie Theater, um, which is now a Rite Aid pharmacy. <laughs> <laughs> and so and they've, <laughs> they've kept some, a lot of the, uh, um, they haven't really uh, stripped down the, the uh, structure in terms of its presentation. So if you walk into to shop for uh, pharmaceutical, your pharmaceutical needs, you're going to see these magnificent, um, you know, brick style movie houses. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, patronized those theaters. Um, and, uh, I, I remember some of the movies that I, in fact, one of my favorite movies, um, was at the Avalon theater. I was eight years old, 1953. And my older brother and I saw a movie called the little fugitive. And some people who are listening now may remember this film because it was, filmed in 1952 and released in 1953. It's in glorious black and white. And it's about a little boy who runs away to, to Coney Island by himself. Um, the story is more involved than that. And yeah. he spends two full days a weekend, Saturday and Sunday, all alone in Coney Island. He actually ran away thinking, thinking that he killed his brother, which was a ploy by his brother and his brother's friends to make this young boy uh, leave them alone so they can play their baseball game. <laughs> um, and it backfired because he really thought he killed his brother and he got so scared he ran away. And he gets on what? the subway at 86th Street and Bay Parkway in Bensonhurst <laughs> and takes the train to the last stop. He has no idea where he's going. And he spends the entire weekend alone with six bucks in his pocket uh, in Coney Island. And it is What's a the movie called again? Uh, it's called Little Fugitive. Little 
fugitive. Yeah, I have um, a DVD. Where was, where was the uh, Avalon Theater again? What corner? East, East 18th Street and Kings Highway. East 18th Street. I'm going to get us to around there and see if, uh, about some of the other names uh, of streets around there. Because, you know, East 18th Street, well, obviously, yeah. you know, we, we know what uh, <laughs> East 18th Street is. Um, but I know that you had some, uh, while I'm looking that up, why don't you go ahead and talk a little bit about Manhattan Beach and its street names? Oh, Manhattan Beach, sure. Um, well, Manhattan Beach was developed by a gentleman. Well, I don't want to call him a gentleman because he really wasn't, but <laughs> that's another story. Um, it was developed by Austin Corbin, and Mr. Corbin, um, in the late 1800s, um, purchased the land uh, from, I believe, I have two names in my mind here. I have Mr. William Stilwell, of course, Stilwell Avenue in Coney Island next to Nathan's. is named after William Stilwell. And another gentleman named um, uh, William Engman. And Engman, now Engman, I think, is the one who developed Brighton Beach. And uh, anyhow, Mr. Corbin purchased the property that became Manhattan Beach, and he named it Manhattan Beach um, after the island of Manhattan, which, of course, it's not next to. And he built these two massive hotels there, the Manhattan Beach Hotel and the Oriental Hotel. And uh, the, one of the main streets in Manhattan Beach is Oriental Boulevard, and um, the other is Shaw Boulevard. And he wanted to attract to his hotels, and, of course, at, when these were built, uh, the biggest and most popular resort in the United States was being developed. Brighton Beach, Manhattan Beach, Sheepsa Bay, and Coney Island, with the racetracks, the vaudeville theaters, the restaurants, and so on. And Corbin was also in the railroad business. And I think he was president of the Manhattan Beach Division of the Long Island Railroad. And his railroad took you directly to the rear of his Manhattan Beach hotel. And, now, is that um, structure still there? No, no, that's all, they're all gone now. They're all gone. When the horse racing stopped after 1910, as I mentioned earlier, um, the uh, wealthy slowly stopped coming. And um, by 1913, I believe, the Manhattan Beach Hotel was taken down. And I think in 1916, the Oriental Hotel was taken down. So they lasted from, let's say, around 1880 to the 1910s, those big hotels. Well, Corbin wanted to attract the well-to-do, so he named the streets. Uh, the first street in Manhattan Beach is called Corbin Place, named after him. And that was the last stop on the line of his railroad. But going east towards where uh, Kingsborough Community College is now, at the very eastern tip of Manhattan Beach, starting after Corbin Place, you have alphabetically Amherst, Beaumont, Coleridge, Dover, Exeter, Falmouth, um, uh, Gerard. Unfortunately, Ocean, Ocean Avenue breaks. Yes, Ocean the Avenue is, is continued from the Sheepshead Bay side of, she right. of, of the bay. Correct. So anyhow, they're all alphabetical, all the way up to the letter Q for Quentin. Huh. And uh, so um, these were English-sounding names. And by the way, this was also done in Flatbush. I think I mentioned that in the last podcast how the developers in Flatbush, uh, Mr. T.B. Ackerson and Dean Alvord, 
named uh, East 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th, and 16th, Stratford, Westminster, Argyle, Rugby, Marlborough, and Buckingham. And they were given permission by the city to do that, to, to attract the wealthy to come and buy these beautiful turn-of-the-century Victorian homes in Flatbush. It's, there's spectacular homes out here, too, uh, because Google Maps is, allows you to now have an angle once you get uh, really close. Now, in terms of these names, you said they were English-sounding names. So were, were the names just random? They, they, they just wanted uh, any yeah, kind yes. of uh, random English-sounding name? Yeah, these were random, and they were specifically done alphabetically right. um, in Manhattan Beach just to make it easier to people to know, you know, to get around. In fact, a, a good part of Brooklyn is very easy to get around in because um, the streets are numerically one after the other, and, and in many areas, the streets are alphabetical, like, like in Manhattan Beach. Um, for example, in Flatbush, you have Albemarle Road, which was originally Avenue A. Then you had Beverly Road, which was originally Avenue B. And you have Cortelieu Road, which is actually pronounced Cordelieu, named for Jacques Cordelieu, and that was originally Avenue C. Dorchester Road was Avenue D, and so on and so on and so on. Um, and uh, keep going south. And once you get to Glenwood Road, which was Avenue G originally, you get to Avenue H which always was Avenue H. And from Avenue H south, it is all alphabetical, I, J, K, L, not names, but lettered, all the way to Avenue Z in Sheepshead Bay. That's, and that's once awesome. you pass Avenue Z, you go right as a hill on Coney Island Avenue that goes right over the Belt Parkway, and the first street you come to is Guider Avenue. And Mr. Guider was a borough president in the 1920s, I believe. Okay. okay, and then you get to Neptune Avenue, which is appropriately named because it's just a block and a half from the Atlantic Ocean. Neptune, of course. <laughs> and then you get to um, uh, Brighton Beach Avenue, which is right in the heart of Brighton Beach. I left one little street out there, um, Ocean View Avenue, which is before Brighton Beach Avenue, because it's a block and a half from the ocean. <laughs> and then there's Mermaid Avenue and Neptune Mermaid Avenue. Mermaid, right. all, all nautical names, correct. Right, exactly, exactly, and and that's how long has that parade been going on? The, how long uh, the Mermaid been? Parade? It's it's the Mermaid Parade, right? The Mermaid Parade, yes. Well, th that um, was initiated. Um, I'm not sure how long ago, um, but it's run now by the the so named mayor of Coney Island, Mr. Dick Ziggin, who runs the um, the Coney Island Museum, and. Um, and it, it's wonderful. I mean, the Mermaid Parade, it's uh, on, I believe, a Saturday in June, in early June. And um, it, is, it is a sight to see, I'm telling you. I've never been. Oh, Sam, you've got to see it. All the police officers have big smiles on their faces. <laughs> <laughs> and so do all, all the other people. Because there are women um, dressed as mermaids and men dressed as mermen. And there are children dressed nautically as well, and even babies in strollers uh, appropriately dressed. But a lot of the women, and I say dressed, I should say undressed, I mean, <laughs> many of them are dressed, you know, below the waist is fine, but uh, towards the upper, upper extremities of the body, many of them are just, just have pasties on. And everyone has a grand time. It's, it's a, hopefully the weather is sunny and warm, and there are floats and bands and 
and the day ends where the participants partake in a uh, in the evening at a big gala, a big party, and it's just a, a, a sight to be seen. It really is. Is it August? It's a season? festival that opens up the summer season. <laughs> oh, opens up. Okay. Okay. Well, I have to pencil it in for next June. Um, yeah. And uh, going a little bit over, um, I believe it goes all the way down to Coney Island, or at least one of the beaches. Um, trying to find it. Nostrand Avenue. You gave okay. me a little background about Nostrand when we talked on, off the air. Yeah. Um, the street, not not actually pronounced Nostrand, but Nostrand. it's named for the von Nostrand family. A Dutch family, and um, uh, and by the way, they were slave owners, as were many of the families, because it was all legal. And um, Nostrand Avenue uh, begins at, on at Emmons Avenue, and there's another street, Emmons, who was Dutch, and the actual name is E M A N S, and today it's E M M O N S, and uh, Mr. Emmons was there. Um, Oh, as early as the, I believe, the late 1600s. And, um, and the, the first street in Sheepshead Bay, right along the bay, is Emmons Avenue. And Nostrand Avenue cuts in on a right angle around uh, East 29th. Nostrand would be like East 30th, right? Nostrand Avenue. And it runs due north through Sheepshead Bay, through Midwood, through Flatbush, and into um, Crown Heights, Bedford-Stuyvesant, so it's a long street, and uh, and by the way, it is not the longest street in Brooklyn. Bedford Avenue is right. Bed- Bedford Avenue begins again at Emmons Avenue in Sheepshead Bay, and runs all the way through Williamsburg, and ends at Manhattan Avenue. You make a left turn on Manhattan Avenue, and you're in Greenpoint, which is all Polish. So Bedford Avenue runs eight miles, and it's the longest street in Brooklyn. And Nostrand becomes Lee in Williamsburg. Yes. So I know that when I'm leaving Williamsburg, when, I'm, when I do bus tours for groups and I'm heading back south out of Williamsburg, I know that Lee Avenue, which is one of the main commercial streets in Williamsburg, in the Hasidic uh, neighborhood, uh, I know that Nostrand, I'm sorry, Lee Avenue ends and becomes Nostrand Avenue, heading due south, going back towards the southern part of Brooklyn. Now, I know that, you know, we're winging this a, a little bit. Do you, uh, do you know anything about Lee Avenue and who that, what the, what the Lee was, um, who the Lee that was? Well, I'll that, tell you, that before, was I was looking up Clarendon Road before, but it's not even listed in the book here. Okay. The book does not have, um, it doesn't have all of the uh, named streets, but it has quite a few of them. And Lee Avenue, I'm going to look that up now. And that should be in there, definitely. Um, let's see. Here's Lorimer. Here's Keep Street, okay? <laughs> okay, <laughs> Lee Avenue. It honors two fraternal Virginia signers of, the, signers of the Declaration of Independence, Richard Henry Lee and Francis Lightfoot Lee. And these were um, two signers of the, independ- uh, of the Declaration of Independence, um, and, and, and I mentioned about slaveholding. It says here, though a slaveholder himself, the first piece of legislation Richard Henry Lee introduced in the Virginia House of Burgesses recommended levying an extraordinary tax on anyone importing slaves to put, and here's a quote, his quote, to put an end to that inquitious and disgraceful traffic 
within the colony of Virginia. So uh, it's, it's so interesting that somebody would would uh, have slaves, but but still be, you know believe that kind of uh, you know, yeah that's true that, that, um, that it was morally wrong and uh, it I, you know you try to grasp exactly how or why that was, but um, my guess is economically speaking, it, it must have been something along those lines. Yeah, that's true. And, and incidentally, you know. You know, you think of slavery, you, you, automatically you think of the South. But in the middle 1700s, um, here in New York, the biggest money-making, quote-unquote, industry in New York City was the slave trade. And it was second only to Charleston, South Carolina. So That's remarkable. It, it is remarkable. But um, slavery was abolished um, well, beginning in 1799 in New York, but it wasn't official in New York State until 1827, which is a good, um, let's see, 40, 50, it's a good, about 30 years before the Civil War. Mm-hmm. So uh, long before the Civil War, New York State abolished slavery, officially in 1827. Well, since we're still over there, uh, at least I am on the map, uh, Bedford Avenue, where, what, who is Bedford? Bedford is not a person. Ah. Bedford is named from for Bedford, England. Okay, it's an English name, and uh, and incidentally, there were there were two communities. You had Bedford, and you had Stuyvesant, Stuyvesant Heights, and these were two separate communities that were adjacent to one another here in Brooklyn. And it, starting in the 1920s and definitely into the 30s, the area started to become more integrated, and um, the Brooklyn Eagle newspaper in the 1930s, coined the phrase Bedford-Stuyvesant as the two communities merged, you know, uh, through the uh, introduction of uh, uh, integration into the uh, area. So Bedford and Stuyvesant were two separate communities, and they became Bedford-Stuyvesant. Fascinating. Um, Going all the way back to uh, Clarendon Road and the, uh, the Wyckoff Farmhouse Museum, Yes. Uh, I, you know, we, you and I were talking, and I, and I just had the map in front of me, and all of a sudden on the map it said the, the Wyckoff Farmhouse Museum, and I was like, oh, I wonder, wonder what that is. Um, give us a little background on the Wyckoff Farmhouse. Okay. It's named for um, Peter Clayson Wyckoff. Now, his name is really Peter Clayson, C-L-A-E-S-E-N. Uh, he was an indentured s- a servant, and he came... In the 1637, I believe, and in 1652, he built that farmhouse. And would you believe 11 children were raised in that farmhouse? And um, in 1664, the English took over New York then, and it became, uh, of course, renamed New York. And um, the English demanded that the Dutch take English-sounding surnames. So Peter Clayson chose the English name of Wyckoff. And today, throughout the United States, there are, I'm guessing now, probably in excess of 15 to 20,000 descendants to the original Peter Clayson Wyckoff. And every year or two, they have a reunion in different parts of the United States and this year, that reunion was held in Nashville, Tennessee. 
That's fascinating. So they they still plant on this this uh, this piece of land. Yes, it's right it's at the a, corner for, large... for all for all you out there. It's at, at Gitmus, Ralph, and Clarendon. It's it's a it's a triangular plot. Yeah, the actual address I believe is fifty eight sixteen Clarendon Road, right on the corner of Ralph Avenue, and um, it's it's actually it's open to the public. The the Wyckoffs lived in that house, you know, descendants of the original Peter Clayson Wyckoff, until 1901 or 1902, and uh, they sold the house. I believe sometime in the 1960s, one of the Wyckoff family members happened to drive by and couldn't believe that the house was still standing. Keep in mind, it was built in 1652, mm-hmm. and incidentally, it is the oldest house in New York City and very likely New York State and it's on its original site and it's never been moved so remarkable it's uh, it's remarkable it, it's uh, really something I got to check out and I didn't know yeah it's open to the public and um, it is booked solid from September into June by school groups and they come and they learn what farming was like during the days when the Dutch were here, and, uh, and it's a large piece of property, and uh, they grow crops and spices, and they have festivals all year long. Remarkable! I got to check it out. And so, I want to segue back over to the uh, the Lowe's Kings Theater. Uh, we touched on those neighborhood places, but this one, this this uh, this was a, a humongous palace, and they were called palaces, and. Um, I, I did a little research, but if you could give a little background on uh, just you know w- what these were all around New York, New York City, um, and uh, in- including Lowe's King. Well, the the, the Lowe's King's movie palace, because it definitely was not a theater. When you walked in there, you felt like royalty. It was magnificent, and many of the Lowe's theaters. Um, throughout New York City um, were, were majestic, really wonderful, large palaces. And um, it was built and opened in September 1929, a month before the stock market crash, closed in 1979, and it's been closed ever since. And is currently undergoing a $90.3 million restoration, and there will be live entertainment once again on Flappish Avenue as it was when it opened in 1929. I mean, you look at it from above on the on Google Maps, and it's just so majestic, and it, it's humongous. And to yes. think that that just sat there for all these years is, is uh, you know, a shame. Well, um, it, it was very much deteriorated inside. Um, I've been inside uh, several times. The last time was uh, this year on January 23rd, the day they... Um, supposedly broke the ground for the restoration. Uh, there was no groundbreaking, of course, because the building was already there. And um, it was there, too. You know, Bloomberg was there, Marty Markowitz, the media, I was there. And um, this company, Ace, ACE, from Houston, Texas, and they've restored movie palaces throughout the United States. And they're going to do as best they can to restore... Um, as close to the original as they can. Because like I said, there was tremendous deterioration in the theater. There were leaks in the roof that really messed up the interior walls. The roof was repaired a number of years ago to stop the leaking, but the damage had already been done. 
And um, when my wife and I got married in 1969, we lived in Flatbush, and we remember going to the theaters along Flatbush Avenue. And I had never been in the Kings before. We walked in there, and I was amazed because most of the theaters that I had gone to were just movie theaters. This was truly a movie palace. And uh, you were and saying that some of, uh, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, um, some of what did in these movie houses, other than just television in general, was cable television. And yeah, once, you were telling me a story about the 70s. Yeah, once um, it was announced that cable TV was trying to get a foothold, and of course you would be charged a fee to get cable TV in your home. Prior to that, of course, television was free. The only channels you had here in New York City before cable was channels 2, 4, 5, 7, 9, 11, and 13. That was it. And it was free. But once cable came in, everyone wanted you know, this, this new, uh, uh, new channels and a whole slew of them. And uh, I remember going to the Kingsway Movie Theater and the, the theaters feared cable TV because cable would show a lot of movies, you know, some only a couple of years old. And I remember going to the Kingsway Theater in the early 70s, and in the lobby of the theater was this large tank of water, almost like a fish tank. And in the fish tank, there was a, a plastic or a glass cup at the bottom under the water. And they were trying to raise funds to um, cable TV coming. And you would lean over the fish tank, and, and there were no fish in there, just the water in the cup, and you drop a quarter into the water, and you try to get that quarter into the cup. And if you were successful, you got a free ticket to see the movies, okay? Most people couldn't do it, because once the quarter hit the water, you know, it would waver in different directions. But some people got a free ticket for the movie. And this was to raise money to fight cable TV, of course, and that didn't work. <laughs> right. It, it, it certainly did not, and... Uh... And that's when the theaters started closing up. Mm -hmm. you know, a number of years later, a lot of the neighborhood theaters disappeared. And as I mentioned before about the Kings, there were about five theaters all along this Flatbush Avenue strip in Flatbush. You had the Rialto Theater, the Albemarle Theater, the Astor Theater, the Lowy's Kings, um, and you had the Kenmore Theater right around the corner on Church Avenue or Flatbush. You had five theaters within five blocks. And... They're all gone. The last theater to close was the Kenmore in 1995. So with this Lowe's Kings theater, um, you said they had live entertainment, but eventually they, they, it was a one-movie place. Now, um, it sat 3,295 people. Remarkable. So how what often would that be sold out, do you think? But yeah, and they would, they would sell out, absolutely. And by so, the way, when it opened, you had, you had a movie, you had a live stage show, there was an orchestra. You had a whole orchestra, and the orchestra was on a, in an orchestra pit down below, adjacent to the stage, and when the orchestra started playing, Sam, a hydraulic lift would raise the entire orchestra up to the level of the stage. And uh, I remember my, when my wife graduated high school, it was held at the Lois King's Theater, and she was in the school band, and she played the flute, and she remembers the, the orchestra pit was down below, and when the the uh, seniors were watching in, the pit would rise up, and she said that several members of the orchestra had trouble following the music on the music sheets and while rising up at the same time. 
Oh, that's that's uh, spectacular. So would something like uh, Snow White in 1938, would that have been in the Lois King Theater? Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, I played in Flatbush at a different theater. I think it was 1939, and it played at the Patio Theater on Flatbush Avenue. And there's a sixth theater, and that was several blocks further north. It was around... Hawthorne Street or Fenimore Street. But this was On the biggest Clarkish around that area. This was the and biggest around closed, that area, right? Yeah, the patio theater closed in 1958. 58 it closed. And there's a big apartment house complex there now called Patio Gardens. And here's an interesting story. A, an usher at the patio theater, his name was Lester Binger. And in 19... Let's see, 36, Lester filled out an application to get a job as an usher at the Lois Kings, because that was the, you know, the top-of-the-line place, that being an usher, the Lois Kings Palace. So that was 1936. He waited two years until he got the call to come and be an usher at the Lois Kings. And he ushered there from 1938 to 1940. And you ready for this? It paid 25 cents an hour. And I got so, that right from Mr. Binger a number of years ago. And so, he allowed I me mean, to photograph a picture that he had of the marquee of the Lois Kings in 1939 when Gone with the Wind was playing for the first time. Remarkable. So 25 cents, you know, I'm guessing that was minimum wage. Would that be equivalent to 5 or $7 now? Um, well, the minimum wage now, I believe, is 7 and a quarter or 7 dollars mm-hmm. So I guess that would, that would be the minimum wage then. And, uh, you know, he was glad to get the job. Right, <laughs> of course. Um, I want you to, uh, right before, you know, we, have, we don't have too much time left, but I want you to touch a little bit on the Jewish mafia in Brownsville and East New York that we got into. And I'm <laughs> going gonna, gonna to go there, and maybe we can also talk about some of the street names around there. Okay, well, um, the neighborhoods of Brownsville and East New York um, in the 1920s and 30s was a predominantly Jewish community. And uh, we all know, of course, the Italians had the mafia, but the Jews, not to be outdone, had their own crime syndicate called Corporated. And they were notorious. And, um, um, and it was a very safe neighborhood because they kept the neighborhood safe. Um, and um, I mean, some of these members were Abe Rellis, um, uh, Meyer Lansky, um, I'm trying to think some of the others, but um, an, an, an interesting story, the rabbi, the former rabbi at my synagogue in Flatbush, when he first came to Brooklyn from Rhode Island in the 19, 1957, and he blames himself for the Dodgers leaving, because when he came in 57, the Dodgers announced that they were leaving. <laughs> <laughs> um, so several years later, he was officiating, you know, when, when, when um, a priest or a rabbi, when they officiate at a funeral, they invite the family members into the office to get the names of the, the immediate family so that when they do the service, they know exactly who they're talking about. So the rabbi brings the family into his office, and he goes, what's your name? What's your relationship to the deceased? He goes, what's your name? And so on. And he gets to this one guy, and he goes, what's your name? And the guy says, Meyer Lansky. And the rabbi looks at him and with a big smile says, boy, you got the same name as that gangster. Well, guess what, Sam? It was Maya Lams- Lansky, the, 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 um, the gangster. Rabbi said that he thought he was going to take out a gun and shoot him right there. <laughs> and Lansky says to him, 
Listen, Rabbi, don't believe everything you read in the newspapers. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who don't know, Myra Lansky is one of the characters um, uh, on Boardwalk Empire, one of the ga- Jewish gangster characters. Right. Uh, Arnold Rothstein is obviously one of the more infamous ones, um, especially because of, because of the, uh, white, the Black Sox scandal in 1919. Um, but Meyer Lansky is, as well, uh, a well-known Jewish gangster of the time, and that was a fantastic story you told about him. <laughs> well, we are coming to the end. We have, uh, we, you know, we have a couple minutes left, and we can uh, touch. Uh, I, I want to touch on uh, Pitkin in East New York. You had some great information regarding uh, Pitkin there. Yeah, well, um, well, we've given derivation of street names, but neighborhood names, uh, East New York, uh, it's an interesting uh, little story. Um, in 1835, a, a shoe manufacturer from Connecticut named John Pitkin, and those Brooklynites who know Pitkin Avenue here in, in the Brownsville, East New York neighborhood, Mr. Pitkin came here for, in 1835 from Connecticut with a vision, and his vision was that he wanted to build a city that would rival New York City, which would, be, of course, be Manhattan. And, um, and he started to build housing for his workers, and uh, two years later, in 1837, there was a major financial crisis. And considering what happened recently here, not much has changed economically. So that ended his dream to build a city uh, because his finances went through, through the basement. So he couldn't finance anymore to build a city. But the neighborhood, the name East New York, which is what he was going to call this city, that name stuck. And it's still there today. And that's from Mr. John Pitkin. And Pitkin Avenue, of course, became a main uh, commercial street in Brooklyn. And it still is. Remarkable. And uh, unfortunately, sorry, Mr. Pitkin, other than Brooklyn, nothing really can rival. Uh, you know, I've never seen any city like it other than uh, maybe Chicago, really. But, but you know, it's... it's um, it, it's just a remarkable, uh, so many different stories regarding just not only uh, Brooklyn, but also New York City, and I'm glad to be taking them in, and I'm glad that you could give us some insight regarding uh, this great borough, and we will continue to have you on and uh, get some, some more information that you were obviously filled with. Well, uh, it's my pleasure, and I, I love about my Brooklyn and uh, and educating people who, who really would like to know more about where they live and about the streets they live on and the neighborhoods and where these names come from and, and the, just the history behind it. And that's, uh, that's my love. That's what I love to do. Well, as much detail as I can possibly take in as I write this TV series, uh, and I, I want to take in, and I very much appreciate you coming on and sharing your insight with us. My pleasure, Sam. Anyway, that's our show, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving. Have a wonderful holiday, and we will check back in next week. Have a good one. Bye now. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. 
No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.